All right, we begin today the third uh, session in our course entitled The Leaven of Liturgy. Today we get into the liturgy proper, but even then you still got some prayers. Uh, we would call them preparation prayers that some people probably are unaware of. There are prayers that take place prior to the beginning of the Eucharistic liturgy. And there's a history there. Um, this, this is some pretty interesting stuff, I think, uh, dating back to the 9th century, uh, some, the Colic for Purity. But these preparation prayers from around the same time. And so we'll get into all of that uh, after we begin. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, the leaven of liturgy. I don't know if you all heard this. Uh, I wasn't so sure originally about calling it the leaven of liturgy. Because leaven is sometimes thought of negatively in the scripture, it's referred to negatively. And then at Synod a couple weeks ago, the bishop said that we are the leaven. And I said, okay, good. (laughs) Then I did choose a good title for this because I think of leaven positively for whatever reason. But as we turn to the the first page in in the liturgy for Holy Communion, which is page 67 in the Book of Common Prayer, we see here... Preparation prayers. First of all, it's notable that the Lord's Prayer there at the very beginning is in, I would say, not that I know of for sure, but I'm pretty sure none of our churches begin the service with the Lord's Prayer, even though it's right there in the Book of Common Prayer. So this is a, a one thing to begin to think about. The order for Holy Communion begins with the Lord's Prayer and the Collect for Purity. The prayer book here brings the Serum Missals, introductory prayers of the celebrant, out into the congregation to be heard and participated in by all. By that, the, the, this refers to the Collect for Purity, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open. In the Serum Missal, this was part of the preparation prayers of the clergy in the vesting room, in the priest's sacristy, there are prayers that the clergy and the altar party will stand around and pray. This particular prayer, the call for purity, was brought out of the sacristy, as it were, to the congregation. And if you think about that, that's a very Anglican move to make, which is to say uh, we're going to reduce the distance between the clergyman and his congregation. Uh, some would call it clericalism. The farther away the clergyman gets from his congregation, the more uh, secretive or, or uh, separate the, the, the clergyman is. Um, for, for the typical Anglican you know, sensibility, the worse it is. We need to try and bring uh, that clergyman closer to the congregation. Uh, and this is one of those steps, is saying if the priest is going to pray to prepare himself for the Eucharist, which in the past has typically begun in the Rome Missals, began with the introit, not with, the, with an introductory prayer like this, let's just bring it right out into the open. The prayer book, uh, you remember the Sarum Missal is the Salisbury uh, liturgy from Salisbury, England, where at the same time also there was 
the liturgy for Hereford and the liturgy for York. So even in England, after a, after a period in which there had been an effort to unify the liturgy, there were still traditional liturgies uh, based on regions. Even within England, there were differences. But this, the Book of Common Prayer, this liturgy is largely based on the Sarum Missal. And that's where the, the colic for purity first comes out. But why do we omit the Lord's Prayer from the beginning of the liturgy? Um, well, first of all, even though our rubrics, which means red, are printed in black, the rubric says the Lord's Prayer may be omitted at the discretion of the priest. So one reason it's omitted is that it's at the discretion of the priest. And the priest says to himself, typically, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer again later in the liturgy. Let's not make it a double dip. Let's just give you the Lord's Prayer after prayer of uh, consecration. So it comes later uh, in the service. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been, ever been to a, a full funeral with everything you could possibly have in it in the Anglican tradition, but sometimes by the end of the service, you've said the Lord's Prayer three times at different points of the liturgy. Nothing bad about that. It's just uh, typically the reason it's left out is we're going to say it again later. However, secondly, because it's most often included in a, a prayer called the confidior and other preparatory prayers that are still used. Now, the confidior, this is what goes on behind the scenes. So when that little, when you first walk into the into St. George and on your left, there's a little door that has a piece of paper and says, please knock in case people are praying inside, inside that little door, right before the service begins, the priest, uh, any assisting priest, the acolytes, etc., we pray together a responsive prayer called the confidior, um, which is surrounded by a couple others. There is also a series of prayers for vesting. Some of you learned about that uh, when I taught this a million years ago. There are particular prayers for each vestment that the priest puts on the helmet of salvation. The, the, uh, the, the chasuble is like a yoke. There's a prayer about that. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. The, the alb, which is all white, is like being washed in, in the blood of the lamb and pure as snow, the girdle. Um, each, each of those, uh, there's a prayer. I didn't include all that, maybe a little bit too deep in the weeds, but if you're interested, I can talk to you about it. But the confidior is a prayer that uh, the seeds of which emerged first in the 8th century from Egbert of York. Notice York of England. Pen pal of the Venerable Bede instructed priests to pray. This is before you dare to put on those vestments and stand at that altar. Pray to him from whom you wish forgiveness and say that you have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed. Acknowledge it. Especially since you're about to pray the colic for purity to a God who, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Before you get to that, just say, I admit it. I have prayed. I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed. Those exact words are included in the confidior. It's a form of mass confession preparatory prayer with its earliest full liturgical reference found in the 12th century. And not that you'd recognize him, but that's Eckbert right there in the middle. There's, there's not a, a whole lot of images of Eckbert of York, nevertheless. The confidior, uh, it begins like this. 
The priest will say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen, and, and continues, I will go into the altar of God. You can tell this is a, a prayer of the priest. By the way, if you ever see in liturgy V and then the following line R, it's versical response. Versical response. The versical is done by the minister or the celebrant or whomever is leading the service. I will go unto the altar of God, the response, even unto the God of my joy and gladness. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who hath made heaven and earth. This is a, this is a pre- preparation for the confidier, because confidier is the beginning of the Latin for, I confess to God Almighty. Confitior, uh, I don't have the whole Latin here, but that's the beginning, the first word of this, of this prayer, which in history has been shorter but this is the, the form that, that most clergy use. Uh, and listen to, carefully to the words. Uh, first of all, we're confessing out loud and, and admitting. I confess to God Almighty, to Blessed Mary of a Virgin, to Blessed Michael the Archangel, to Blessed John the Baptist, to the Holy Apostles, Peter and Paul, to all the saints and to you, brethren, which is just about everybody. Okay? All right, since all heart, unto him all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, I might as well not pretend with you guys either. And I won't pretend with St. Mary, I won't pretend with uh, Michael the Archangel, John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles. And in fact, the original prayer used to say, I confess to God Almighty and to all saints, and to you, my brethren, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed by my fault, mea culpa, by my own fault, mea culpa. By my own most grievous fault, mea maxima culpa. If you've ever heard anybody say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, it's by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. And then it basically repeats the beginning part. Wherefore, I beg, blessed Mary of a Virgin, blessed Michael the Archangel, basically beg everybody and you to pray for me. You realize you're not asking St. Michael the Archangel to forgive you for your sins. You're admitting to St. Michael the Archangel that you have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed. And you're asking, please pray for me. That's the, that's the original prayer. And finally, uh, the prayer is returned. The response is returned. God Almighty, have mercy upon thee and forgive thee thy sins and bring thee into everlasting life. These are prayers that take place by clergy, etc. prior to the, the service. If you ever go to a synod... And uh, you're, you're at the Synod Eucharist, and there's a whole bunch of people there. The organ's playing, the choir is singing, but the clergy haven't come in yet. And you hear some chatter in the back, some men all speaking together and responding to one another. This is what we're saying. The bishop is responding to us as the celebrant. He's giving the, uh, the versicle, we're giving the response, and then we switch. Then all the clergy say the confession together, and he says the response. It's a, it's, a, it's a tradition that comes really from the 8th century, but the fullest form of it is first found in the 12th century, the Confidior. It ends, funny enough, with the Lord's Prayer. So it overlaps. Well, I'll show you. <laughs> Keep pushing my button. Uh, the Confidior ends with the Lord's Prayer, which you see sort of overlaps with the beginning of the Eucharistic liturgy. And one of the reasons we eliminate the Lord's Prayer from the beginning of the liturgy is we just said it after the Confidior. When the choir is in session, which is September through May at St. George, the St. George Rite, 
which means our personal idiosyncratic way of doing things here at St. George, is to pray the Lord's Prayer of the Confidior with the choir. So uh, the clergy will stop the Confidior at the point where the Lord's Prayer begins. We'll go and join the choir, and we'll bring the choir in on this preparation. We pray a prayer for, I believe it's called the Colic for Prayerfulness, from Family Prayer in the back. And then we pray the Lord's Prayer together before we come out and stand in the narthex. The doors open and we're ready. So now the clergy are prepared, the the acolytes are prepared, the choir is prepared. We're ready for the general prayer of preparation. But in this way, both the confidior and the prayer book are observed simultaneously when we put that Lord's Prayer at either the end of the clergy preparation or the end of preparing with the choir. We actually have said the Lord's Prayer. We just didn't do it uh, with everyone. Any questions about the confidior? Um, anybody heard of that before? Probably the acolytes, because you, yeah, you've heard of that before. Um, it's a, it, it was a, when I first started as an Anglican uh, and was first brought in with the, the clergy and the acolytes, etc., into the sacristy, this was not a universal practice. Some clergy would just pray an extemporaneous prayer. Uh, in some circumstances at St. Barnabas that's what we used to do we used to pray an extemporaneous prayer as we prepared Uh, the confidior was introduced a little later every time I went to synod I noticed everyone was doing the confidior I thought hmm we didn't used to do it here now we do it doesn't validate or invalidate the the, the Eucharist or or anything like that but nevertheless uh, we're participating in that tradition which is how many years old is that if it's from the 8th century? 1,200 years? I'm looking at you. <laughs> 1,200, 1,300, something like that. It's, it's been a part of, the, it's been a part of the, the practice of the church for a long time, so we include it here at St. George's. Um, but then we get to the collect for purity, which is really where our service essentially liturgically begins. This uh, prayer, and you notice something here, was most likely written by Alcuin of York. That's double York. Um, you ever cracked an egg and got a double York? <laughs> uh, double York here for the beginning of the service. Uh, Alcuin was an English cleric of the 8th century serving under Charlemagne who helped revise the Roman rite. You remember the last class we had, Charlemagne was tasked with basically making the Roman rite universal over the Western church. And so here we have Charlemagne and Alcuin working on liturgy at the end of the 8th century, beginning of the 9th century, you could say. Um, but this prayer, the Colic for Purity, goes back to Alcuin, and it was used, as I said before, in the private uh, prayers of the clergy beforehand at the, in the Serum Missal, also used in the Veni Creator Spiritus, which is now used in ordination rites, and you'll see that in the Book of Common Prayer too. If you go to the Liturgy for the Ordination of Priests, the Veni Creator Spiritus is in there, which is a hymn to the Holy Spirit. Um, and you'll notice when we get into the, to the collect here, how important that is. And also in a votive mass for the invocation of the Holy Spirit. So this, this prayer, Collect for Purity, has its uh, roots in various places in the liturgy. But in the Book of Common Prayer, it was brought right out into the, into the liturgy. And everyone prays it uh, well. The, the priest prays it on behalf of everyone. It has been uh, called the perfect scary prayer. It's a scary prayer 
and I've told you this before, because uh, we pray to God unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. You can hide a lot of things from people. You can hide things from your kids. You can hide things from your spouse. But when you get in that pew, the jig is up, the gig is up, however you say that, it's up. He sees through all of that. And if you're going to participate in this liturgy, you might as well acknowledge from the very beginning, he sees it. He knows it. And not just the thing you did, but the thing you wanted to do. He knows that too. Ooh, that gets scary, right? Uh, uh, Massey Shepherd, who writes the Oxford, uh, Amer- the Oxford American Prayer Book Commentary, which is sort of a jewel for our tradition, he writes, The entire sum and substance of true worship is expressed in the collect for purity, something of a little microcosm of what's about to happen. To the omniscient Father unto whom all hearts are open, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, at whose inspiration thoughts even thoughts may be cleansed. Not the thing you did that you need forgiveness for, but the thought you had and the thought that you're potentially going to have this week. That thought can be cleansed through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose love was worthy and perfect. It is a Trinitarian prayer, but it is a plea for perfect worship. It's really something else. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Do you know what this is a picture of? Any guesses? That is Jacob and Isaac. Jacob presenting himself and his fake hairy arm to his dad, uh, who couldn't quite see and couldn't quite hear. He was able to fake it pretty good. You can't wear the furry arm and say, I'm someone else in this liturgy that we use. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Consider how much hiding takes place in our lives. We dress up for Sunday because we do our very best to present our best to the Lord. But we dress up a little bit to look good. (laughs) To look good for ourselves, to look good for others. To put the best spin on us. I think the Lord appreciates us putting on our best, but he doesn't buy the spin. Okay? (laughs) Whatever you use to cover yourself up in your life doesn't work with God in worship. We should acknowledge that quickly. Right at the beginning. Not at the end. At the beginning. Uh, As the prayer goes on, we pray that the Holy Spirit would cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. This is... Uh, my favorite old schooler, uh, Evagrius of Pontus, who instead of uh, what we popularly know as the seven deadly sins, which is things that you've already committed, he wrote about the eight thoughts, which is before you've committed it, you thought it. Okay, So before you did the thing, you thought the thing. You wanted the thing. He says that's where the real battle is. It's in the thoughts. And so we don't say uh, at the very beginning, praying that the Holy Spirit would cleanse us from the the stain of the thing we did. He said, we pray that he would cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, even the thoughts, by the inspiration, the in-breathing of the Holy Spirit. And I've got you there on the eight thoughts and the seven deadly sins. This is is, uh, the seed of the sin, is the thought. Consider 
uh, inspiration means the breathing in of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is, I mean, just by the by nature of the word spirit, you get the idea that that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is as Jesus says, like a wind. In the Old Testament, uh, in Hebrew, ruach, which is like breath or wind. Um, we're asking for him to breathe on us, Holy Spirit, so that our, even our thoughts will be cleansed. But why? Uh, so that we'll be presentable before the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, you, you're, there's a lot of self-preservation, though, in that notion that the most important thing is that you're presentable before God so that... Uh, you get through the turnstiles of heaven, right? You get through, the little thing clicks, and it, it says 43, 44, 45. Get through the turnstiles. Yeah, but that's not really what's at the heart of this. The purpose of the cleansing, not only so that we may be saved from hell, which is a natural thing. Of course you'll be saved from hell. If you are in perfect love, that we may perfectly love thee. That's the goal. Uh, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. You could have very easily said, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit so that we'll not go to hell. Amen. That's not what it says. It says there's work to be done. There's liturgy to be done, which means the work of the people, that we may perfectly love thee. Now that's a high goal. And worthily magnify thy holy name. That's a high goal. The purpose of the request, the purpose of the colic for purity, to begin with an openness about yourself and with the request for the cleansing of the thoughts of your heart is not so that we may be saved, naturally we'll be saved, obviously, but it is so that we may now perfectly love thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Any thoughts about that? Or I'm, I'm going on and on. Got a little more, but yes, uh, Janet, please. Mentioned seven deadly sins and eight thoughts. Do those correspond? And what if so? What's the eighth thought that's not part of the seven deadly sins? They roughly correspond. Um, this I, I led you right into this trap because I want to talk about this all the time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> aha! <laughs> the eight thoughts was uh, was first. You could say first formulated by Evagrius. In the 4th century, it was turned into the seven deadly sins by Gregory the Great in the 7th, 8th century. Um, so there's a few centuries between there. But in those first centuries, uh, the eight thoughts roughly correspond with the seven deadly sins. By the time you get the seven deadly sins, there's a couple that are pushed together and one or two that are taken out. Um, like, for instance, sadness and acedia or listlessness, despair, uh, Gregory takes those, puts them together, and calls them sloth. So that's, that's a little bit uh, different. Um, lust is changed, or fornication is turned into lust. And there's a couple other little changes like that, but it's basically the same kind of idea. Yeah. And if you want to, if you think vice, it's called a vice list, I guess you could say. Vice lists exist throughout the scriptures. St. Paul has them uh, in his epistles. You know, he says, people that do this and this and this and this and this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kind. You know, those vice lists are not a new thing in the fourth century. But anyhow, that's where the eight thoughts come from. I find it interesting that we pray for the cleansing of our thoughts, not, that, uh, not our deeds. Deeds, yes, but thoughts first. Um, this need for preparation. Why do we need to prepare? Worthy participation in the sacrament confers the great benefit of divine life shared with us. Christ gives himself to us as we give ourselves to him. And he comes to dwell in us and we dwell in him. We ought to participate in that worthily. St. Paul actually has warnings about unworthy participation. In this effort, this means of grace that God has given to us, he's made himself eminently, literally, eminently available to us. You must not offer yourself half-heartedly to a gift like that. And unworthy participation serves to harden the heart and bring condemnation, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He points to the need of it. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. It used to be said at every Eucharist in the Anglican Church starting in the 16th century, and now it's said three times a year, rubrics command us to say the exhortation. There are three exhortations, but the primary one, uh, close to the beginning, sounds like this. Um, We must consider how St. Paul exhorteth all persons diligently to try, not try and examine, but try, like a lawyer, try yourself and examine um, yourself before they presume to eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if with a true penitent heart and lively faith we receive that holy sacrament, so is the danger great if we receive the same unworthily. Judge therefore yourselves, brethren, that ye be not judged of the Lord. And and the exhortation continues. That is uh, often said later in the liturgy, or it is said later in the liturgy when it's said. But St. Paul's um, urging us to prepare ourselves in 1 Corinthians 11 is communicated at the very outset of our liturgy in this, in this colic for purity. Now, you could easily say that uh, when you're in a liturgical church, even though you could say things, well, I don't know what you would say, it comes pretty fast. If you blink, the colic for purity just passed you by. And we were just uh, talking about the absolute depths of this prayer but it's prayed in about 22 seconds or less. You know what I mean? 18 seconds or something like that. Part of the reason it's important to have a moment of recollection before the liturgy begins is so that when you get to this prayer, you'll know what you're talking about with yourself. This is portion a portion of the liturgy's opportunity to try and examine yourself. Um, yes, Liturgy is, the one drawback to it is it's so deep that when you go through it, you can't help but miss all kinds of things. I would say don't get discouraged by that. Don't, don't think something's wrong. Oftentimes in the liturgy, 
as we continue, one element of, of it will stop you. And you'll say, whoa, all hearts are open, all desires known. And yes, as the law is being recited after that, you're still thinking about all hearts are open, all desires known. That's fine. I would encourage you not to be too distracted. But if, if you find yourself uh, drifting as you've been thinking about one element of it, that's okay. We're going to do this again next week. And then we're going to do it again the week after that. It's the nature of, of liturgy like this is it's so compact and so full that you want to hear it again. You ever see a movie that you want to see again because you missed half of it? This is just, uh, you can't even compare those two experiences, but it's like that, right? There's so much here. So we have a straight and narrow path that's defined for us. Because one, one uh, instinct of the church was if it's going to be this severe, if, if it's going to be this, uh, almost you could say dangerous, well then I just won't receive it all. You know, I'll just go find a church where we don't do this. You know, this is too much. I'll get a nice teaching church where the guy preaches for 45 minutes and <laughs> they have good coffee and cookies at the back. That's safer, you know. Uh, a lot of churches will keep their sacrament away from the people and put it on a Wednesday night somewhere so that the severity of this sacrament will not be exposed to, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry who walk in through the door. We have a totally different way of doing that. We start with the colic for peace, and then we give you the law, the summary of the law at least. And if it seems heavy, that's okay because we say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Regardless, Jesus says, we must receive. Do this in remembrance of me is a command, not a suggestion. It's an imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. And then St. Paul says, as you're obeying this command, you must also receive worthily. And so we really have uh, laid out for us a straight and narrow path. Um, and the straight and narrow path is really purity, which is why we're praying for it. And so we pray the calling for purity as we prepare to receive this great gift of God. We are going to have to, on the one hand, receive because we're commanded to. On the other hand, receive worthily because that's the only way we'll receive true benefit uh, from this sacrament. We're going to do the very best I can, or the very best that we can. You may find that when you get to the point where you're about to receive communion, you uh, are not sure that you actually enumerated and confessed every sin. Pray for the mercy of God on you, that he would see your heart, your intention to turn towards him, your intention to repent, and accept that. If you are looking for a complete psychological inventory of everything you've done and everything you've thought and everything you've said, you may never receive because you'll never get to the end of this list of things of examining yourself. At some point, you've got to find this via media, this middle way where you're obeying the Lord the best you can and you're following the instruction of St. Paul the best you can and, and receive. We're praying for the mercy of God anyway. And so, here on our final slide for this morning, the shepherd and the flock, here's a, a portion of commentary. Standing at the head of his flock, 
the priest offers up this preliminary prayer to God for himself and them, that all may be prepared by his mercy for the solemn rite in which they are about to take their respective parts as priest and Christian laity. The shepherd stands at the head of the flock and prays on their behalf, which is why I'm facing east just as you're facing east, because we're all praying this together and I'm vocalizing it on your behalf. Um, That is the picture of the beginning of what takes place in our liturgy. And, you know, the whole course is entitled The Leaven of Liturgy. This is a little bitty prayer. Yes, it's 1,200 years old, 1,300 years old. The intention is present earlier, but the words of it are, are real short and real small. What we're hoping is that throughout your life, this would act like leaven, and it would spread throughout the whole lump, so that in your life, you'll recognize that, yes, it's a wonderful thing to be saved, but how much better to perfectly love the Lord. And perfect love casts out all fear and has all other kinds of benefits to it. But the real goal is a perfect love as the Trinity enjoys between each of the persons of the Trinity to participate in that. That's the real, that's the real goal, the real telos, the end of what, we're, of what we're shooting for here in participating in this great sacrament. Any uh, comments or questions? Yes, please. Right. Well, the straight and narrow path, which I think is one of the most helpful descriptions that the Lord gives us about life in Him, the straight and narrow path um, suggests progress. It's a path, which means you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and sometimes one foot, well, sometimes, a lot of times, one foot starts to say, go to the right or go to the left. Another, if you have three feet, another foot wants to go back to the broad path, which is so much easier, that leads to destruction. Um, It's the reason that we don't have the Eucharist once in your whole life. In fact, we have it every single week. We also have it on Wednesdays. And a lot of churches have it every single day. Now, we can't... I don't know, I'm looking at my altar guild. (laughs) She says, every day? What? A lot of churches have, will have the Eucharist every single day. Maybe that's part of our future, but it's, it's a part of that footstep. But I'll tell you, uh, at the end of the liturgy is depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. 
not stay here and do the Eucharist over and over again and never leave this building. Depart in peace to love and serve the Lord and come back in seven days. We'll do it again. That suggests progress. That suggests you've got work to do. That suggests there's a garden out there and we need laborers. So it's very good. It's, it's true. Our liturgy is not a very good pep rally. <laughs> it's not a pep rally. And you may come out encouraged as you've ever been in your life, but it, it wasn't because um, of, a, of a pep rally. Yeah. Any other uh, thoughts or, or comments, questions about the liturgy? We've, of course, we're just getting into it, but that, that, the preparation prayers and the call for purity really set the tone for the whole liturgy, especially the call for purity, since everyone's participating in that. It's kind of interesting to know how old the prayer is, where it came from. And that we're not the first people to pray it. But if, if, if you're done with questions, that's all the material I have. So God bless you. Until next week.